Podcasting from Oregon in the beautiful Pacific Northwest, welcome to Eye on Global Politics. Sit back, relax, and get ready to explore some of today's most pressing international issues. Now, here is your host, international relations scholar, author, and founder of the International Law Education Group, Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas. And good evening. It's 9 p.m. and you're tuned in to the ILEG radio show. Coming at you live from the heart of Oregon's Willamette Valley on the West Coast. Broadcasting around the world on radio.ileducationgroup.org and ionglobalpolitics.com. I'm your host, Paul F.J. Aranyas, for the next hour here on the ILEG radio show. We have a lot to talk about, a lot going on in the world, and... We're talking about Ukraine, because that is the hot topic in the world. 33 priests, Orthodox priests, arrested. Christian monasteries being raided. Zelensky is now proposing banning the Orthodox Church, which has leadership in Moscow. Now I can tell you, right off the bat, This is right up my alley as far as international legal specialty, uh, as far as my background in world religions and international law, and that is an international human rights violation. Clear cut. Zelensky is proposing to ban the Orthodox Church because it has some leadership in Moscow. Now, we could go through the different ways in which that there is no derogation possible when it comes to Article 18 of the ICCPR, the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights. But we're, we're not going to get too legalistic here today. I think you know, I think we all know that banning a church for singing a song and calling it subversive activities is wrong. I think we know that raiding Christian monasteries in Kiev and other parts of the country is wrong. I think that it doesn't take an international legal scholar to tell that that is unacceptable. Is this an aberration? Is this an aberration of what what Ukraine, the, the regime in Ukraine is doing? with raiding monasteries and proposing to ban churches? Unfortunately not. This is not an aberration. Ukraine is not a democracy. Where did anybody get off saying that Ukraine is a democracy? I remember eight years ago, I seen 
Ukrainian politicians being dumped, put into dumpsters outside the parliament. Seen video of that. Thrown into dumpsters. Because their politics wasn't appreciated by some some or other faction. Probably the of the far right wing nationalistic variety. Meaning those were the ones that were dumping the, the politician into the into the dumpster. Zelensky has already banned opposition media. Banned political parties. And yet you have people in the West, the Western media, the mainstream media that continually continue to say, what, what did Macron say the other day when he was trotting along in the United States doing his usual song and dance? What did he say? He said, they uphold our values. Can I get that, that quote? They, they hold, uphold our principles. He said about Ukraine. They defend our principles, is what he said. Macron said, they defend our principles. What principles are those? And we're going to get now get into it and, and, and dig a little deeper in this idea of democracy. What, what principles are those? Of course, everybody thinks he's talking about democracy. Because the West stands for democracy, it stands for human rights, it stands for freedom. That's, that's what he is referring to. But that's somebody just talking about themselves. Is it actually true? Does the West actually stand for democracy, human rights, and freedom? Right off the bat, we have to start with the discrepancy... Let's start with the friends of the West. If the West stands for democracy, freedom, and human rights, why is it that the French are and have been arming the Saudis and the UAE to massacre the people of Yemen and the United States doing the same thing? Do they think that Saudi Arabia is upholding the principles of democracy, human rights, and freedom? I, I don't get it. Could somebody write me in and, 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 and tell me how you can talk about principles and then sell billions of dollars of weapons to Saudi Arabia unless you think Saudi Arabia upholds democracy, freedom, and human rights? I'd like to talk to a Saudi, an ordinary Saudi, and ask him if what he thinks would happen if he spoke out against the Saudi government in public, in Riyadh. Organized protest against the, uh, the royal family. I think he'd end up hanging upside down in a dungeon. What do you think? And then we look at the Palestinians. The Palestinians who live in an open-air prison. Year after year, decade after decade, this, this conflict, this 
occupation never ends. And it's funded by the United States, supported diplomatically by Washington. Now, is that democratic? Either the Palestinians deserve their own state, which I believe they do, or they're part of Israel. And therefore, they should enjoy the full rights and privileges of an Israeli citizen. Voting rights, civil rights, legal rights. So which is it? You have these people that are occupied, that are treated like prisoners, as they are prisoners in their own land, living in an open-air prison, subject to degrading human rights violations day after day, checkpoints, and uh, babies being miscarriages at checkpoints, little kids being killed who throw rocks. And are these people uh, a part of the Israeli democracy, or do they deserve their own state. So how can you fund Israel with billions and billions of dollars and say you support democracy? Are these people part of the Israeli democracy? Is that a democracy over there if they're keeping people in an open-air prison in limbo without a state or without the legal rights under the Israeli government? That's not democracy. How can that be democracy? You know, I was uh, watching a YouTube video to change the subject slightly. We'll come back to this. I was watching a YouTube video this week, and it was about little little children, uh, deaf children, getting their first glimpse, first taste of hearing, so to speak. They were, they had implants hearing implants, uh, surgery, so they could hear. And they, they, it was showing their faces and their parents seeing their children hear for the first time. And it's, it's, it's very uh, touching and a wonderful thing to see a baby's face light up and the parents see a child hear for the first time. And one of the specialists said, said, we have this technology available. The only thing is it's really expensive. And I thought to myself, this country just spent or is about to pass legislation that will bring the grand total of spending in Ukraine to over $100 billion in less than a year. And you have parents with deaf children that have to worry about whether they can have access to this technology or not? Based on their income? Based on their level of insurance? I don't know. I, I'm not a specialist in this area. But what that woman said was it is very expensive. That's the only problem. And yet we spend money on a proxy war. On a proxy war in Ukraine over $100 billion, a war which we instigated, the United States and Europe, 
And we have things like this in our society. We have needs all over the place. As I talked last show, we, talk, we talked about the homelessness. I just read in the New York, in the New York Times, or was, was it CNN, that Mayor Adams in New York is wanting to commit the homeless, put them in uh, asylums, and the homeless advocates and the mental health community are saying, whoa, this is the wrong thing. Because they don't have enough housing or funding for dealing with the problem as it is. And the mental health community is saying, we don't even have enough beds in, in, in asylums to take care of all the homeless. That's not going to work. I mean, so we have this endless amount of money when it comes to war making. Why is that? And you got people laying on the street in this country. They're scooping people up now and putting them in a sane asylum. Just, I don't know, because they're talking to themselves or whatever. You can look it up. It's uh, it's in the New York Times or CNN. Google it. Uh, Mayor Adams has this new initiative in New York City. But the homeless problem is, is, is everywhere. New York, Chicago, uh, Miami, Dallas, San Francisco, Seattle. And yet we have an endless supply of money for war. Whether it be the U.S. wars abroad in Iraq, Afghanistan, bombing Libya, so on and so forth, or funding a proxy war because they want to hurt Russia. But here's the thing. It's not working. Even from their perspective, their faulty, immoral perspective. Even from that perspective, wanting to hurt Russia, they're not. They're not. Yeah, they made it more difficult in Ukraine, but guess what? The West is now in a panic. How can I say that? The European Union is considering the ninth round of sanctions. The ninth round of sanctions on Russia. Now let's 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 look at this a little closer for a second. When this war started, President Biden and his European colleagues in the EU said we are going to devastate the Russian economy, if they come across the border. Didn't he say that? Didn't he say that? That we're going to bring the pain. Never mind that it's collective punishment, that it's totally immoral to try to hurt a population because of the policy of the government. The reality was that they said we were going to bring the pain. Russia's economy is going to collapse, basically. And yet the ruble went up. It came down and then it went back up. And now the EU is on its ninth round of sanctions. Now, if you're so powerful and you have so many tools in your, your war chest of hurting Russia... 
Why do you need nine rounds of sanctions when you said the first round was going to be so utterly devastating? Nine, round of, nine rounds of sanctions. And you talk to the average person in Moscow, go into the stores, the shelves are full. Yeah, they don't have McDonald's. They renamed it to something else. Some international companies left. But what the United States and Europe wanted was to turn Russia into Iraq. I mean, under the sanctions, where they had pictures of Russians dying because they didn't have the adequate medicine and queuing for long lines of food. That's what they wanted. That's what they were aiming for. It, coming from their own mouth. And, and that, is, that is highly, highly immoral. We all remember Madeleine Albright when she said, we think the price is worth it. And the darling of the Democrats... Both parties, I think, are uh, have a screw loose, but she said we think the price is worth it when uh, half a million dead Iraqi children at that time had, uh, had died. Half a million Iraqi children had died due to the sanctions. And she said we think the price is worth it. I just came across a quote from Henry Kissinger. And he said, It is not a matter of what is true that counts, but a matter of what is perceived to be true. That's what they do. They don't care what is true. Apparently, only what is perceived to be true. That's their propaganda in the mainstream media. How can I be so sure of that? You might ask. For some of you, this may be your first rodeo. For some, you may be a veteran. For some of you, you may be in your 20s or maybe even in high school. And you're looking at the media and you say... Who do I believe? CNN, MSNBC, all this these power, or, or Dr. Paul? What makes Dr. Paul so certain that they're not telling you the truth or the whole truth? Well, I'll tell you, when I did my research on the bombing of the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, Extensive research. And originally, the U.S. government had come out on national television and said that there are mass graves in Kosovo. Tens of thousands. I believe it was the Hoon, the Home Secretary of the United Kingdom, that said 200,000 in a mass grave. And they showed their Aerial photos, and blurry photos that didn't really show anything. 
and they bombed the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia even though there was a peaceful solution at Rambole. There was a legitimate, legitimately peaceful solution. But they bombed Kosovo, uh, Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, because of the Kosovo situation for 78 days. After that, the CIA, Spanish forensics, went in. They found about 700 bodies. Overall, they calculated about 2,000 or so killed, about split evenly with the Serbs, about half the casualties. And they never retracted their statements about mass graves of hundreds of thousands of civilians. So when I was a graduate student, we visited NATO in Brussels. And one after the other, higher-ranking, high-ranking officials came to give us presentations, and I called them out on it. And I said, why did you tell the world that there were mass graves of hundreds or 100 or 200,000 dead bodies when there was a couple thousand people on both sides of a conflict that had been raging, and many of the people that were killed, a lot of the people, because there was an uptick after the bombing occurred, after NATO went in and bombed. Obviously, it's going to escalate the situation. There's going to be reprisals and some atrocities after that. They said, point blank, we were basing on it, basing it on what happened in Croatia. We were wrong. And I remember a, a young lady from Cambridge coming, running up to me at the break said, I didn't know that. I thought, of course you don't know that because they're not going to teach you that at Cambridge or Oxford or Stanford. Stanford, where Donald Rumsfeld got to be a professor after the invasion of Iraq or a lecturer. Because once they put out this propaganda, they don't go back to correct it, to, to retract it, to properly inform the population. Because according to them, they're always right. So just looking at that one conflict in Kosovo, you could see the propaganda of the West. I encourage you to pick up my book, Smokescreen, The U.S., NATO, and the Illegitimate Use of Force, which I, I document it. You can look at the sources of that. You had the CIA arming the KLA, which was involved in prostitution, rings, drug rings, organ smuggling, You name it. And you had refugees being circled around, coming around, their lines of refugees, and, and, and it's the same, same line coming on loop. Was it, were there hardships? Was it suffering? Yes, war, conflict always produces suffering. I'm not minimizing anybody who went through hard times in Kosovo or in Bosnia, which was a, a very bloody war. 
But the problem is the propaganda and using suffering and a conflict between two sides for nefarious purposes. When there could have been a lot less bloodshed if a peaceful avenue was taken. But instead of seeking peace first, they tell you they want peace, but they do all these things behind, behind, behind the scenes in order to get an advantageous, in their eyes, outcome. And advantageous for them means using their military first. Was there a peaceful solution to the current Ukrainian crisis? Yes. Yes. And there are multiple times when that could have occurred, going back to 2014, 2008, 2022. But the West doesn't know how to negotiate. You might say, whoa, 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 look, look at Macron. He was out there trying to talk to, to, to Vladimir Putin before the escalation in February of 2022 of this year. Isn't that diplomacy? First of all, the French and the Germans didn't do anything to press the regime in Kiev to implement the Minsk Accords. That situation went on for eight long years. And eight long years for, for us is just a number, but for the people of the Donbass, it's their children hiding in, in basements and being on the receiving end of shelling and, and, and atrocities. Secondly, the French, the Germans, pick another country in, 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 in Europe, are not independent. They like to think they're independent, but they don't have, they have limited power. And this is why the Russian government said, we don't really need to talk to Macron. We'll talk to you, but what we do need to talk with and having to come to agreement for a European security architecture is we need to talk and agree with Washington. You can't have 40,000 troops in and countless military bases in your country from another country Germany has now it's roughly 40,000 US troops is more now but before this this uh this escalation of the Ukraine war occurred and countless military bases throughout Europe and call yourself independent And that, that showed, that came through shining loud and clear when all evidence points to the United States blowing up Nord Stream 2. Joe Biden said in February, we have ways to do it. How are you going to uh, shut off Nord Stream 2? It's a German project, says the journalist. We've got ways to do it, Joe Biden said calmly. And he was right. We'll blow it up, and you know what? You think the Germans are going to make a big deal about it? Have they made a big deal about it? No. 
to think that the Russians blew up their own pipeline. If they were going to blow up their own pipeline, why wouldn't they blow it up close to them? Not, not so far away out into the sea. They'd just have to blow it up next to their territorial waters. And why would they blow up their own infrastructure that they spent billions of dollars building? And who had the motive to do it? And who said they would end it, end that pipeline, if something happened, which happened? So in a court of law, the first suspect that would be picked up would be the United States. Not Russia. United States said it would do it if this happened, this happened, and it happened. The pipeline blew up. The UK probably was along with them. Maybe some little help from Poland. That's what it looks like to me and to a lot of other people. But you have to ask yourself, where's the outrage from Germany? You can't be outraged. Yeah, some people in the cafe, uh, some activist groups, some students in a university can say, oh, this is horrible and can have some picket signs. But you can't be outraged as a government. And they're not when you're subservient. And the Germans, the French, oh, I know it hurts the French, their ego to say that, but they're subservient. Okay, you don't, you don't start talking about having no, uh, no school because you've got to shut down energy supply in your country, which you did to yourself. You put sanctions on your own energy supplier, and they shut off the tap. You don't do that and shoot yourself in the foot because somebody else says it and say that you're independent. And I always said that when all the talk about uh, European, new European army and all things like that, there's one easy step. Get rid of the American bases. Get out of NATO. Then talk about it. Don't talk to me about having an independent European army when you're, when you're virtually a slave to Washington. And this whole conflict in Ukraine has taken down the mask. Now, what will come of it when the Europeans are, have no heat and their industry starts to, uh, to crumble? Maybe new, new leadership will come up and there'll be a change when, when, when they understand uh, what they've done to themselves by being so subservient and lacking any in- intelligent strategy for themselves. Maybe that will occur, but until that time happens, it's just talk. It's just talk. And we talk about the U.S., E.U., Ukraine proxy war with Russia. That's what it is. Russia's fighting 50-some-odd countries. So why do they say Ukraine is a democracy? Let's get back to that. Because it had elections? 
Russia has elections. They, they call it a autocracy. I can name you a dozen other countries that the United States says are dictators or autocrats that have elections. How can you be a democracy when you ban opposition parties, when you ban opposition media? Now arrest priests, raid monasteries. How can you be a democracy and why are people repeating that on social media? People say a lot of things on social media. But it really doesn't comport to reality. How can people say that Ukraine is a democracy? Gephard, Gephard writes in to our ILEG radio, social media, Twitter account. ORC propagandist blocked, he says. Uh, yeah. First of all, I don't want to spend too much time on you, Gephardt, Gephardt, but uh, is that your real name? I assume that Gephardt is referring to an anti-aircraft gun of the German variety. Perhaps it's your real name. I don't know. It doesn't look like it. Why do people go on social media with... Are they ashamed of their surnames? Are they ashamed to stand up for what they say? Why use an alias? Use your real name. Then speak to me. As far as being blocked, does that make any, any sense? I don't know who you are. Uh, that's fine. Go ahead and, and block us. I didn't even know you were around. Okay. Thanks, Gephardt. Gephardt, that's, that's great. That's great. And you know what? I think you need to better use of your time than going on uh, social media sites that don't know you, you know, from, from anything else and telling them you're blocking them. Uh, that makes really little sense. Get a hobby. All right. Um, next. Yes, this, yes, the Finnish prime minister said that the war in Ukraine shows that Europe is too weak and needs to get stronger militarily. It's too dependent on the United States. Did she really need the war in Ukraine to tell her that? Did she need this whole thing to tell her that they're too dependent on the United States? I don't think so. Moscow accuses the West of legal nihilism. Now, France is supporting a special tribunal for investigating Russian crimes of aggression in Ukraine. The Russian foreign ministry said it is outraged by the statement. And it accused Western nations of trying to create another politicized judiciary body which has nothing to do with justice. The Russian foreign ministry says, We never cease to be amazed at the cynicism of the French authorities. 
It accused Paris of turning a blind eye to the legal lawlessness of the Kiev regime and its violent repression of objectionable media and numerous documented war crimes committed by its forces against the people of Donbass. The ministry suggested that France should instead create a special tribunal for its own crimes committed in the course of colonial wars, various punitive operations, interventions in various parts of the world. The war crimes committed by the French have remained unpunished and deprived France of the moral right to level accusations at other countries, the ministry said. Now I hear people saying, well, that's whataboutism. You know, there can be... The French can have gone around the world maiming and killing in Algeria, Indochina, Libya, irradiating the people of Tahiti. But that doesn't excuse Russia from committing crimes in Ukraine. And if you said that, you would be right. But the only problem is France is not a neutral arbiter. It is not a neutral party. It is arming the Ukrainians. It is a part of NATO. It is an enemy of Russia right now. It is an enemy of Russia because it is actively arming soldiers in Ukraine to kill Russian troops. The United States, France, the UK, the EU are actively seeking and arming not just Ukrainian troops, but mercenaries, Poles, French, Americans, Romanians, in Ukraine to kill Russian troops. So they can't say we're going to put a neutral a tribunal to investigate war crimes. All war crimes should be investigated, whether they're committed by the United States, France, Russia, Ukraine anybody else the problem is twofold and it's not about it's not what about ism the problem is that the west is never held accountable for their war crimes and secondly they're unfair they don't have the ability to create create a neutral fair tribunal we saw the tribunal with Milosevic where he died still defending himself because of lack of medical treatment. He died in The Hague because he was embarrassing NATO and the West on a number of fronts. Were there war crimes in Bosnia? On all sides. They wanted to paint that it was just Serbia. It was all sides. The Croats committed horrible war crimes. The Bosniaks, the Serbs, it was a bloody, bloody war. That, again, was preventable. But the West, the Germans, the Americans, they wanted to rip apart Yugoslavia. And we can talk about that another time. I've detailed that in my book, Smokescreen. Just how nefarious that process was to break down a country, choking it off choking its uh, ability to fund its individual uh, constituent parts and then arming and supporting the extreme elements. 
That's what's so horrible. The West claims to want peace, but they go behind, behind the scenes to rip situations apart to create chaos. Did they create peace? Did they go into Iraq and create peace and justice and a better society? No, ISIS came out of Iraq. Out of that whole conflict, ISIS emerged and chaos emerged. Did they create peace when they bombarded Libya? No, out of that bombardment of Libya, where children were being dug out of the rubble, chaos emerged where Al-Qaeda, ISIS, took one-third. ISIS took one-third of Libya. And so the West trying to take, you know, the French leading a... a a movement or a, a initiative to create a judicial body, a tribunal, is farcical. Because if you're going to have any tribunal about Ukraine, it's got to start with the Ukrainian government who massacred the people in the Donbass for eight years. And like I said, my experience in in with extensive research on the Kosovo situation led me to be very skeptical when they talk about war crimes being committed by Russia in, in Bucha or anywhere else. My stance has always been crystal clear. Don't use the suffering of people for political propaganda. If you want an an independent, a truly independent investigation, do it, because it deserves that. War crimes always deserve investigation. But you can't go in there and, and, and right off the bat and tell me when you're dealing with a regime that's as corrupt and undemocratic as the Ukrainian regime and the nationalist elements, the Banderites in that, in that country... Tell me that they act like they're coming out of the Vatican, like they're the Dalai Lama. That they don't commit atrocities and that they wouldn't try to commit atrocities and blame it on Russia for PR purposes. And that is why you always need an independent investigation. And you can't have an independent investigation if it's led by one party to the conflict. I mean, that's, that's logical. How can France, who is arming Ukrainians, who is a party to the sanctions regime to try to cripple Russia, which has failed, be anywhere near independent enough to lead a judicial or propose a judicial body to investigate war crimes in that conflict? Even the notion of that is a farcical. It's farcical. I mean, it's common sense. It's common sense. By the way, the uh, New Caledonian parties, the independence parties, finally met with the, the interior minister of France. They hadn't spoken with French 
authorities or hadn't met with them since the ridiculous referendum that they boycotted. That France tried to jam through. If you want to talk about democracy, start there. That is scandalous. Scandalous. Here you have an indigenous people that have been subjugated historically and continue to be subjugated by the French's presence in New Caledonia. And the third referendum for independence is scheduled. And it's looking mighty close, like the vote could go, realistically could go for independence. And the Delta virus strikes New Caledonia. And the hardest hit are the indigenous people, the Kanaks of New Caledonia. And they make a simple request to postpone the referendum until the following year because of their burial customs, to respect their culture, that they have this extended mourning period for all the people that had passed due to the Delta virus. And the French government said no. They said no. Can you imagine that? They said no. And went ahead with the referendum in the entire independence camp. There was like a 56 or 50 uh, some odd uh, uh, abstention rate. The entire independence camp stayed home. And the French government had the audacity to go say, oh, there was, uh, they mes- mentioned it in passing, there was a lot of abstention, but this is, shows that New Caledonia wants to stay with us, France, all the way on the other side of the world. Never mind that it's loaded with nickel and it's a strategic hub for their aspirations, their, their Navy, naval aspirations in the, in the region in the Indo-Pacific. How cynical is that? How damning is that? But there seems to be a problem with recognizing the self-determination of peoples. They're unable to recognize the self-determination of the Kanaks in the New Caledonia, even give them a fair referendum and respect their cultural heritage during a very difficult time of, of, of COVID that hit them very hard. They were unable to respect the French, the Germans, the Americans, to respect the right of self-determination for the people in the Donbass who wanted to speak their own language. And the Ukrainian government, who they backed, passed these draconian laws where they couldn't speak their own language in the civil civil institutions and schools for education and the media. That's the basic right of self-determination. You know, self-determination originally came about, it was Lenin. It was, it was economic self-determination, socialism, 
And then you had Woodrow Wilson, his 14-point plan, and the Treaty of Versailles. And self-determination was, at that point, discussing the mandate system that colonial people that were colonized, colonial subjects would get their, get their self-determination after some time. They weren't able to have it right away because they just weren't able to uh, sustain themselves. So they were put under a mandate system. And after World War II, self-determination became an immediate decolonization in the 50s and the 60s, decolonized in Africa and elsewhere. We need to decolonize immediately, become our own state, and have self-determination. And then it was about civil rights, self-determination within a society where racial discrimination was rampant in the United States, for instance. Self-determination to not be oppressed, Martin Luther King Jr. Self-determination for a people within a society. And Native American in the 70s, indigenous self-determination. And so it went through various phases of self-determination and ultimately coming, uh, coming around to where self-determination is to be able to express your own culture, speak your own language within a society, not necessarily meaning, and it doesn't mean under international law, to have a secession, to, to be, have your own country, to, to become a separate entity but to be able to express your cultural identity, your language, and everything that goes along with that within a society and have that respected and respected by legality. And that's what happened in Ukraine. In Ukraine, there was a democratic, democratically elected government in 2014. As I said, imperfect, yes. But it was democratically elected, and it was overthrown with the backing of the West. It was overthrown with the backing of the West, and the people in the east of Ukraine didn't like it. Because the people that came to power were nationalists and extremists. They were nationalists that had a poor opinion, to say the least, of the Russian lang language of ethnic Russians. And we saw people being burned alive in Odessa, in the building, and the scores of people being burned in the building, jumping from the buildings as nationalists trapped them there. And Crimea went independent. They didn't want any part of that. They were talking about suffocating Crimea, starving them out. They tried to blockade them. Crimea said, hey, no, we're... And the Russians came in covertly. And, and, and stop that. And so the people in Donbass said, hey, we don't want this government. We didn't vote for this government. We don't want any part of this government. This government is illegitimate in Kiev. And so we're going to protest for a federal Ukraine where we can have some, some autonomy, some level of control of our local environment. And so the extremists in Kiev sent in the army. But guess what? The army 
and said, look, these are fellow Ukrainians. We're not going to fire on them. And so some of them, and there's video of this, put down their weapons. Say, hey, we're not going to, we're the same people. And so the extremists in Kiev sent in the nationalist neo-Nazi battalions. And they had no problem killing their own people because those are ethnic Russians. Those are Russian speakers. Those are people close with Russia. You know, I was in, uh, I was in Montreal at that time, about 2014, for a political science conference. And I had stood up, there was a um, big wig from NATO came to give a, a keynote. And I called him out on the bombing of Libya. His theme was about democracy. And I said, how can you talk about democracy when you bomb Libya? And resolution 1973 was for no-fly zones, and you bombed Libya for seven months and violated the mandate. And yet you have the audacity to talk about democracy. And he gave some wishy-washy answer. And anyway, after that, I went to the cafeteria and sat down and had, had some food. And a young lady sat next to me. And I thought, yeah, maybe she just wants to be social. And she had heard my, my, my little speech. And talked to me for a while. Turned out she was married, and she was from Ukraine, studying as a PhD student in Canada, in Vancouver. And so I was having a nice conversation, eating my meal, and she's telling me about this situation in Ukraine, or we were discussing it, it came up, and I said, you know, I hope there's peace there, I hope there's peace, it was, you know, you, you are so close, Russian, Ukrainians, you got the same history, pretty much the same language, cultures, Slavic cultures. You should have peace. You should, you should get along, you know. I said, she didn't want anything of it. I said, hey, could you say one nice thing about Russia? Say just one nice thing. How about Borscht? You like Borscht? She said, no, that's not. That's Ukrainian. Uh, I mean, it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. And I said, you know, I told you know, there's a right-wing nationalist, Azov, she said, those, those are nationalists. They're good, good people. She, she was a right-wing, extreme right-wing person. And she couldn't say one nice thing about Russia, not even about the food or, or the population. Not one nice thing. And I left after I finished, I finished my meal, and I said, well, you know, I said, actually, I said, I hope you become president. And then I said, I take that back. I don't hope you become president, because if you do, there'll be a war. And guess what? People just like her. These nationalists are, were in power, stayed in power, illegitimately, and there's a war. There's a war. They had eight years, eight years to stop killing their own people in the Donbass. But their hatred for ethnic Russians, for anything Russian, led to the current wider war. And it's really sad. It's really sad. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the war in Ukraine, on what I've talked about today. I want to hear your perspective. You can voicemail in a message at one 888 
1-888-974-ILEG. That's 1-888-974-ILEG or 4534. And let me know your thoughts. It looks like it's going to continue to last this war. And as I said, my, my opinion is we, we need a peace negotiation, a diplomatic solution. And if Ukraine continues on its current course, I think by next summer, you're going to see a situation which I, I believe anybody in the military establishment that's looking at the facts on the ground will know that Russia is going to roll over Ukraine in any way it wants. I know it, it's initially didn't adhere to the U.S. doctrine of shock and awe. You know, it didn't bomb Kiev. It didn't take out the infrastructure. And now it's taken out the infrastructure because the extremists in Kiev are, you know, unwilling to negotiate. They want to take Crimea. They want a total victory. That's a, it's, it's a warmongering path. And we need diplomatic negotiations. It's a mess over there, quite frankly. A lot of people are suffering. And it doesn't have to be that way. And I think that any ordinary Ukrainian that wants the rest of their country, the East, the people of the East that are majority loyal to Russia, they should let them stay with Russia and figure out how to pick up the pieces in the rest of the country. Otherwise, you know, this heartache and this, this, this struggle, this, these, these spectacles of suffering will continue. And we need peace. We need peace. So we're out of time right now. Uh, I hope you uh, have a great Sunday evening. And until next time, as always, keep the faith. You've been listening to Ion Global Politics with Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you will share our International Law Education Group web address, ileducationgroup.org, with your family, friends, and colleagues. Don't forget to check out ionglobalpolitics.com for future articles and podcasts, and to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We look forward to welcoming you to another episode of Ion Global Politics.